Let me just give you a hypothetical here, my friends. What if you had a choice? And the choice was this. You could save the lives of children or you could avoid politically correct information. Which would you choose? What are the lives of children worth to you? This is a very, very interesting question. It's a chilling question, but it's something that I'm going to spend the next little while unpacking for you in talking about Nicholas Cruz and the absolutely horrifying school shooting that occurred recently in Broward County, Florida, because more information has come out that is absolutely essential for us to understand if we wish to, as I hope we all do, if we wish to prevent a recurrence of just such a nightmare. So let's start looking at all of the tendrils and causes and tentacles and threads that led towards that horrible, bloody day. Let's go back to 2011 and 2012. Broward County Public Schools had 1,056 total student arrests, 71% for misdemeanor offenses. Some misdemeanor offenses are just like minor wrongdoings, but of course the idea is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if you can head off a child who's going in the wrong direction in terms of his relationship to the law, if there's vandalism and breakage and, and so on, pretty uh, drug use and so on, if you can head that child off of the pass and bring them back into the fold of society, that's a good thing. So you should intervene early and you should, you should intervene, intervene decisively in order to turn that child's life around. So the numbers for Broward County back in 2011 to 2012 were the highest overall numbers in the state of Florida. After concerns were raised over, and I quote, students of color, students with disabilities and LGBTQ students end quote, being, and I quote, disproportionately impacted by school-based arrests, end quote, the Promise Program was created in 2013. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that students with disabilities are not contributing a lot to the crimes in question. I'm also going to say that LGBTQ students probably not contributing a lot to crimes of this nature, I'm going to guess that the vast proportion of them are being committed by students of color, but you want to throw other groups in, particularly if they serve a victim narrative for obviously politically correct reasons. And this language is really striking, that these students are being disproportionately impacted by school-based arrests. Impacted by arrests. Now, you generally have to commit a crime and be caught or have strong evidence that you committed a crime in order to be arrested. You're not being impacted by an arrest. You are triggering an arrest through the exercise of your free will. Taking away agency is a terrible, terrible thing to do to anyone. So the PROMISE program, what is it? Well, it stands for Preventing Recidivism, which is a re-criminal, re well, doing criminal activity again. Preventing Recidivism Through Opportunities, Mentoring, Intervention, Supports, and Education. So the PROMISE program was specifically implemented in an effort to, this is a quote, eliminate the school-to-prison pipeline. <laughs> I like how they try to differentiate between schools and prisons in these places. But So the idea is, of course, that if the kid is acting up in school and starts to get a negative relationship with the police and becomes defiant and disorderly and commits more crimes and escalates and then moves to a criminal gang and can't get a job, and boom, next thing you know, it's uh, 15 to life. And uh, that, of course, is the goal of eliminating it. On January 8th, 2014, wait, wait a minute. Who was in, who was the president back then? Something with an O, the great racial healer. And 
Let me just mention the theory before we go on here. So the theory is anytime there are discrepancies in outcomes, particularly police outcomes, between different races, the cause is never different actions by those races. The cause is never different levels of criminality. It's never different levels of single motherhood. It's never different levels of toxicity in the culture. It's never different levels of crappy neighborhoods and crappy schools. It's never different levels of IQ between the races. It is always and forever that the only difference in outcome between the races results from white racism. That's your big blanket answer for everything. And that we can see being played out here. January 8th, 2014. The U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Justice issued a joint Dear Colleague letter. Ooh, gives me chills too. Which essentially threatened school administrators with a federal civil rights investigation if there were racial disparities in school discipline, suspensions, or expulsions. Now, the left in general has made any rational discussion of the data driving different outcomes between different races largely untenable. Uh, most people would take their careers in their hands by discussing such matters. But I am actually dedicated to helping solve problems and to, I dare say, save the lives of children and teachers, many of whom were gunned down on that horrible day in Broward County. So I'm sorry if politically incorrect information it makes people uncomfortable, but my goal is to try and help save lives, to bring the truth, to prevent recurrence, and if the explication of challenging information, of challenging scientific facts and data, make people upset about that, well, I guess I just like the kids a lot more than you do and want to help save them. I hate to be so blunt, but that's where we are. The Joint Dear Colleague letter had within it these phrases, these sentences. The Civil Rights Data Collection, CRDC, conducted by OCR has demonstrated that students of certain racial ethnic groups tend to be disciplined more than their peers. For example, African-American students without disabilities are more than three times as likely as their white peers without disabilities to be expelled or suspended. Well, of course, again, if you have as your central guiding bedrock thesis that all races act exactly the same, that all races have exactly the same characteristics and capacities, then all discrepancies in outcome must be the result of white Racism, and not white racism in general, but specifically anti-black and anti-Hispanic racism, that the teachers and the security guards and the administrators and the bureaucrats and the principals and the police and the courts and the juries and the judges, all people are somehow colluding using some secret pasty handshake in order to drive down the success of blacks and Hispanics. That's one possibility. Another possibility, the aforementioned Studies which show differences in IQ in particular, resulting in differences in outcomes with regards to illegal behavior. The colleague letter went on, dear colleague letter went on. Although African-American students represent 15% of students in the CRDC, they make up 35% of students suspended once, 44% of those suspended more than once, and 36% of students expelled. Further, over 50% of students who were involved in school-related arrests or referred to law enforcement are Hispanic or African-American. And this is, I mean, it's the same thing with the wage gap. Women only earn 70 cents on the dollar compared to men. It's like, women make different choices. Women go into different uh, degrees. They take different degrees. Women spend different amounts of time in the workforce. Women want to have kids and breastfeed. And I'm very glad that they do because, you know, it's nice having a next generation. And you, this is the general trick. This is general sophistry is you present disparities and appeal 
to the radical egalitarianist fantasy that everyone acts exactly the same and say, well, the only difference must be because of discrimination and racism. And it's a huge problem and we need to bring the massive might of the state into... Well, anyway, you understand how all of this happens. The letter went on to say, significant and unexplained racial disparities in student discipline give rise to concerns that schools may be engaging in racial discrimination that violates the federal civil rights laws. See, unexplained racial disparities. Listen, don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as racism, but it's not the only factor at work here. And if racists do act differently, then people are going to judge collectively racists differently. Now, please understand, you never take this information and provide and, and use it to judge any individual ever, because individuals are individuals and should be judged according to their own merits. However, of course, when you zoom out to society as a whole, then patterns begin to emerge, which is foolish to ignore. So, for instance, you never say about any particular woman you haven't met, she's shorter than the average man because she could be way taller. However, when you get a big enough sample size, you will find out, lo and behold, that although some women are taller than uh, the average men and some women are taller than tall men, on average, women are shorter than men as a whole. So, don't judge individuals, but when we're starting to talk about aggregates and collectives, you need to start understanding these differences. Letter goes on to say, for instance, statistical evidence may indicate that groups of students have been subjected to different treatment or that a school policy or practice may have an adverse discriminatory impact. Now, voice of sanity, massive praise, U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner Gail Herrier was talking about the effects of this kind of stuff. So you're a school administrator, right? You get this letter. It says, well, if there are disparities in arrest records for your students by race, you may be a racist. You may be investigated. And that's going to ca cause a lot of problems, headaches, time, reputational challenges. You're going to be written up in the newspapers, being under investigation for racism. Feel like that? Does that seem like a great way to have a, uh, a next couple of years? And people say, well, no. So what do they do? What do they do? Well, obviously, they stop referring students to particularly black and Hispanic students. They stop referring them to the police. They cover up, they find alternatives, they don't end up with the police being involved in these kinds of situations. And they have to do that disproportionately for blacks and Hispanics because blacks and Hispanics are committing disproportionately more crime. So that's what you do. Change the numbers, change reality. <laughs> it's like the Fed. So U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner Gail Herriot said, and I quote, under this approach, it's not actual race discrimination that gets schools in trouble. It's having bad numbers. Nobody disputes that African-American students are disciplined at higher rates than white students or Asian students nationally. But what if the reason for that is that African-Americans misbehave more often? And what if the cost of failure to discipline those students falls on their fellow African-American students who are trying to learn in classroom disorder? Now, the fact that she's only focusing on the African-American students being disrupted by the other African-American students who are being disruptive, well, okay, that's not great because it's not like no other groups are, uh, are negatively impacted by these kinds of disruptions. But uh, yeah, what if they misbehave more often? What if they commit more crimes? What if they're more aggressive? What if they fight more? Well, if that's true, we have a whole series of things to unpack, a whole series of things to investigate. But to put this Band-Aid over this gaping wound and say, white racism, that's the answer. And anyone who questions that it's 100% of the answer is a racist. Well, these are just people desperately focused on not solving problems to the detriment of the survival of children 
perhaps as we shall see. Gail Harriet went on to say, it's caused schools to back away from discipline generally, with the result of more chaotic classrooms. Second, it has led to real discrimination where white and Asian students on the one hand and African-American students on the other operate under different discipline rules, all in order to make the numbers look good. In 2015, BCPS Diversity Prevention and Intervention Department published a 210-page text titled Eliminating the School-to-Prison Pipeline, which noted that, and I quote, the use of arrests and referrals to the criminal justice system may decrease a student's chance of graduation, entering higher education, joining the military, and getting a job. Yes, consequences can cause problems, which is why people pay their taxes, because they don't want to go to jail for non-payment of taxes. Consequences are a problem. We say, well, you know, uh, East Asians are paying a disproportionately high amount of taxes, so let's just not collect any taxes from East Asians. <laughs> ah, hey, here's another thing. So they say here, you know, if, if you get referred to the criminal justice system, you could decrease your chances of graduating, entering higher education, joining the military, and getting a job. You know what else? Interesting, interestingly enough, do you know what else it decreases your ability to do? To get a firearm. You'll see why. That's important. You probably know already. In eliminating the school-to-prison pipeline, they say, and sorry about the quote English here, school districts have a legal and, more importantly, a moral responsibility to eliminating disproportional representation of minorities, student with disabilities, and LGBT students in discipline. Yeah, we can parse that out and figure out roughly what they're trying to say, right? I mean... So, yeah, sorry, sorry about all of that. It's not my writing. And we checked it. It goes on to say, major steps in the action plan from the initial year of 2011-2012 to the present include provide ongoing culturally responsive practice training of school leaders and school support personnel, including implicit bias, black male success strategies, courageous conversation about race, critical support guidance for LGBT students. I also tell you, I really, really dislike the phrase pipe, like the word pipeline in this, the school to prison pipeline. Pipes in this analogy or allegory, pipes just contain and allow the transmission of inert substance, just water or oil. It's just inert, no agency, no choice, no free will. It's just a pipeline, blurgle, blurgle, blurgle. The water flows through with no choice of its own. I really dislike the stripping of agency from groups. It is the most hideous thing, and that is, to me, extraordinarily racist. The Promise Program dictated that the police would not be involved as it related to students committing the following offenses. Disrupting or interfering with a school function. Affray, fighting or mutual combat. Theft of less than $300. Vandalism of less than $1,000. Disorderly conduct. Trespassing. Criminal mischief. Gambling loitering or prowling, harassment, incidents related relating to alcohol, possession of cannabis, depending on level, possession of drug paraphernalia, threats, and obstructing justice without violence. I could read that again, but it, it's just going to make me cry. So these are all of the things that the police would no longer be involved in, that you basically could not get arrested for. 
vandalism of less than a thousand. And you know, it's not like if it's a thousand dollars and 10 cents, they're going to be calling the police. Ah, it looks like less than a thousand to me. So this is astonishing. Why have these laws? Now you have entire groups of people, primarily, of course, blacks and Hispanics, who no longer have to obey these rules, who no longer have to obey, obey these laws. <sighs> what do you think is going to happen? What do you think the local crime gangs, who do you think they're going to turn to when they want things done? They're going to turn to the students, to the children, to the young people here who basically can't be arrested for stuff. Now, that's what I call a school-to-prison pipeline. But, see, it's all about changing the numbers, not about exploring the fundamental reality and actually trying to solve problems. You know what it's like? It's like you're out of money and you just take a screen cap of your bank account login and you just copy and paste $1,000 and say, look, I'm rich. Changing the numbers doesn't change reality. So let's look at incidents and suspensions. What was the effect of this dear colleague, you're screwed if you arrest people for crimes, letter. So in 2011 to 2012, there were 133,646 incidents in the Broward County public schools. And there were 81,856 suspensions. 2012 to 2013, the numbers are coming down from 133,646 down to 123,825 and from 81,856 down to 73,868. Big drop. 2013 to 2014, you got another big drop from 120 the year before to just over 100, 100,175. And from 73,868 down to 58,536. Numbers are coming down. And of course, everyone says, wow, look at this improvement. That's fantastic. Let's write it up in the newspapers. Let's cheer. Let's have ticket tape parades. All wonderful things are happening. It's like writing a business plan on cocaine. We'll make a fortune. So after the implementation of the Promise Program, Broward County public school arrests dropped from 1,056 students in 2011 to 2012 to only 392 during the 2015 to 2016 school year. The program received significant praise from the Obama administration, including then-Attorney General Eric Holder, and the school district received $54 million in special grants under Obama's Race to the Top initiative. <sighs> See, you pay for the police to arrest criminals, and then you pay the school administrators to not arrest criminals. And everyone makes out like bandits. Everyone makes a lot of money. Um, but crimes increase and may have well contributed to a horrifying school shooting. The Broward County Sheriff Union President Jeff Bell said, they don't want the police officers making arrests on campus and they don't want the drugs to be found on campus and they don't want the warrants to be served on campus because it looks like there is bad stats at the school. So I place a lot of blame on the school board with that and some of the programs that they have initiated with the state attorney and the sheriff's office in the years past. For example, the Promise Program. The problem is, when that program started, we took all discretion away from the law enforcement officers to effect an arrest if we choose to. Right. So now, in terms of dealing with criminality, you don't turn it over to the officers who are trained and understanding and have a history and blah, blah, blah. I mean, don't tell, don't tell. So, 
on Wednesday, February 14th, 2018, I'm sure you remember this terrible day, at approximately 2.21 p.m. 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, killing 17 people and wounding 17 survivors. The Broward County Sheriff's Office apprehended Cruz, and he was charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder and 17 counts of attempted murder. Broward County Public School Superintendent Robert Runcie on February 28, 2018. This particular individual was never a participant in the Promise Program. He wasn't eligible for it. There's no connection between Cruz and the district's Promise Program. Sounds pretty certain. Pretty decisive. Robert Runcie, March 23, 2018. As we focus on these issues and meeting the needs of our students and families during this difficult time, the rise in fake news related to this tragedy is reprehensible. Contrary to media reports, the district has no record of Nicholas Cruz committing a promise-eligible infraction or being assigned to promise while in high school. Ah, while in high school. Seems like an odd little qualifier to throw in. Did you ever rob a bank? I did not rob a I, I did not rob a bank in any way, shape, or form last year. Robert Runcie, April 2018, said, Let me reiterate this point. Cruz, the shooter that was involved in this horrific accident at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, had no connection to the Promise program. He just came out of nowhere. Broward County Public School Superintendent Robert Runcie defended the Promise Program on April 10th, 2018. We're not going to dismantle a program in this district that is serving and helping kids appropriately because of news that is not fact-based. Plus, they gave us $54 million that... He didn't say that. He didn't say that. On May 7th, 2018, the Sun Sentinel paper reported that Nicholas Cruz had indeed been referred to the Promise Program showing the previous comments by the Broward County School District and Robert Runcie to be... I'm just trying to think of a nice way to put it. Incorrect. Yeah. Incorrect. Broward County School District spokeswoman Tracy Clark said, While our records indicate that Cruz underwent an intake interview slash process at Pine Ridge on November 26, 2013, it does not appear that Cruz completed the recommended three-day assignment slash placement. Interesting. Again, you already got to look at this language. I don't think any of this stuff comes out accidentally. It does not appear that he completed the recommended three-day assignment. Did he show up at all? Doesn't seem to be any indication that he did. So what? What then? Tracy Clark goes on to say, We continue to review records and systems to determine if the disciplinary placement was modified by school administration or the individual education plan committee. Rather than speculate about the possible reasons for his not returning, we feel it's important to wait until we have the facts associated with his specific circumstances. Okay, Tracy, been a couple of months now. Couple of months. And you didn't volunteer this information. It was dug up by the Sun Sentinel. What do you mean, wait until we have the facts? Do you have the facts? Do you have the records? Does anyone keep track of anything over there? So this is the thing. So, oh, we're not going to involve the cops because we've got this program that's going to help these kids. But if he never shows up, nah, nothing happens. Okay. 
If you say you have a program to substitute for law enforcement and people don't show up and nothing happens, you don't actually have a program. You understand? Three months, they say they don't have a clue. Does anybody really believe that? Anybody? Broward County. Our good old friend, public school superintendent, Robert Runcie, May 7th, 2018. There are some out there that are concerned that somehow we misled the public. Some will say we lied. I mean, I've heard all of it. I don't think anyone gave me misleading information. I gave the best information I had at the time. Maybe I should have qualified it further. That's a mistake I made, but it, it was done trying to be as transparent as possible. He goes on to say, it does put a dent in our credibility, but what I'll say is that what we're trying to do is balance being as responsive as we can with the information that we have. Again, they didn't have volunteered this information. It was dug up by the Sun Sentinel. And even if Cruz wasn't in the program, he was still impacted by the reduced standards. He went on to say, if we start coming back as a district, you know what, I'm going to hold back. I can't give you information now until we're 100%. That might take several months. That's not going to fly in the public. People want as much information as we have, and that's it. And we gave folks the information we had at the time. Yeah, good luck with that when you're questioned by the feds. Ryan Petty, father of Elena Petty who was killed during the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High shooting, said, I was stunned. The assumption I was making along with everyone else is that he had not been part of the program. Senator Marco Rubio said, I was repeatedly told that the Parkland shooter was never in the Promise program I was asking questions about. Now it turns out that, in fact, he was. So, stay away, cops. We've got it. We've got it handled. We'll take care of it. During his time at West Glades Middle School from May 2012 to January 2014, Nicholas Cruz served 29 internal school suspensions, totaling approximately 54 days. 13 out-of-school suspensions, totaling approximately 34 days. Three instances of individual counseling, two instances of timeouts, six instances of detention, and 15 days of bus suspension before being banned from riding the bus. These suspensions equated to roughly one quarter of his total school days. So yeah, it was canceled. In February 2014, Cruz left West Glades Middle School and began attending a special school, quote, for students with emotional and behavioral disorders, end quote. Prior to attending the new school, a psychiatrist's memo noted that Cruz was, quote, disruptive by screaming, using profanity, and making sexual gestures. He is defiant of authority and destructive of property. While at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High from February 2016 to January 2017, Nicholas Cruz served three internal school suspensions totaling approximately four days and two out-of-school suspensions totaling approximately four days. Cruz was even banned from wearing a backpack on campus and ultimately banished from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. Why was he returned to a regular school? Was he better? Did someone sign off on that? Is he all fixed? 
ah, they got a duty to educate these kids. They can't fire the disruptors. Like, nobody can get, get out of these places or be let go. The teachers can't be fired. The students can't be kicked out. And what does it banish that he's banished? What does that mean? Is he expelled? Banished. He's so dangerous. They don't even want him on the school with a backpack. None of the stuff comes out of nowhere, you understand. None of the stuff comes out of nowhere. And we find out about it after the bodies are piled high and the children are killed and the parents mourn for generations to come. What did he do? Remember that list of things you could no longer really be arrested for? Nicholas Cruz's violations included disruptive behavior, use of obscene language, bus violations, insubordination, habitual defiance of authority, profanity directed towards staff member, use and possession of prohibited slash distracting items, disruption on campus, false alarm, 9-11, assault, fighting, verbal threats, non-criminal, classroom rule violations, and multiple instances of vandalism under $1,000. How well do you think your child concentrates sitting next to this powder keg? Cruz attended six different schools over approximately three years. They're just kicking him from school to school because they can't deal with him. Broward County. Sheriff Scott Israel released call logs which showed that law enforcement had been called 39 times to the Cruz family home, then criticized the media for reporting it, claiming it was only 23 total calls. CNN then conducted its own investigation and found 45 total calls, including items such as mentally ill person, child-slash-elderly abuse, domestic disturbance, and missing person. September 24th, 2013, documentation shows that psychiatrists recommended placing 14-year-old Nicholas Cruz in a residential treatment facility. I assume that's an overnighter for quite a few overnights. January 17th, 2014, a Cross Creek school psychiatric memo noted that Cruz, quote, threatened to hurt others, end quote, is, quote, intentionally doing things that are not okay, experiences nearly uncontrollable anger since finding his adoptive father dead at home in 2004 and feels sad when his brother bullies him. February 5th, 2016, an anonymous caller warned the Broward Sheriff's Office that Nicholas Cruz had threatened to shoot up his school on Instagram. September 23rd, 2016, a stoneman Douglas quote, peer counselor, end quote, received a report that Cruz had ingested gasoline and had suicidal thoughts. A Stoneman Douglas guidance counselor called Henderson Behavioral Health relaying these concerns, noting that Cruz turned 18 on September 24th and had expressed interest in obtaining a gun. And one of the reasons, as I pointed out earlier, that he could obtain a gun, my friends, is that the police had not been involved in his multiple violations of the law. September 28, 2016, school resource officer Scott Peterson. Hey, that's familiar. Right. 
That's the same Scott Peterson who cowered outside the school while Nicholas Cruz was shooting everyone inside. School resource officer Scott Peterson wanted to use the Baker Act to have Cruz involuntarily committed for 72 hours after he again made threats to school staff. Two involved guidance counselors agreed with Peterson, but a clinician interviewed Cruz at the school and claimed that he, quote, did not meet criteria for further mental health assessment. Boy, it's a good thing that's an objective science now, isn't it? Later that day, a different clinician visited Cruz at home due to the documented claims of suicidal ideation. And this visit was followed by a visit from a Department of Children and Family Services investigator. How many dozens and dozens of people were on this case for years and years and years? The Department of Children and Family Services investigator claimed that Cruz was stable, despite, quote, fresh cuts, end quote, on his arms. Reports of him punching holes in walls and continued discussion about buying guns. September 29, 2016. Estoneman Douglas guidance counselor again called Henderson Behavioral Health, noting that Cruz had written the word kill in a notebook, expressing concerns that he intended to obtain a firearm. Another clinician then visited Cruz at home again, relaying the concerns about him obtaining a firearm. Cruz's mother, Linda Cruz, is documented as claiming that she would be, quote, comfortable with her adopted son obtaining a gun because he, quote, has been respectful of the rules and he understands where guns can be used. The next day. Think I may see a vague outline of one of the problems in this situation. This clinician was also informed by the Stoneman Douglas guidance counselor that the school would no longer allow Cruz to carry a backpack while on campus and that he was banned from target shooting with the school's JROTC marksmanship team. At this point, school resource officer Scott Peterson was also documented as changing his mind about invoking the Baker Act. An involuntary commitment would also have made it incredibly difficult, if not downright impossible, for Nicholas Cruz to legally obtain a firearm. Don't worry, cops. We got it. CNN. In September of 2016, Cruz was on two types of medication, the records show. Both are routinely prescribed for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. The records make repeated references to Cruz having the neurobehavioral disorder as well as the developmental disorder autism, according to statements made by his adoptive mother. There are also references to Cruz having obsessive compulsive disorder, episodic mood disorder, oppositional defiance disorder, and a history of aggression. Sure. So let's just toss him in with the gen pop of the school system. February 11th, 2017. Mere horrifying stuff. Cruz purchased the AR-15 he would later use in the mass shooting. Cruz answered no to questions about whether he had been adjudicated for mental illness or if he had been institutionalized for mental health illness. September 24th, 2017. The FBI was informed about a YouTube comment posted by a Nicholas Cruz that said, I'm going to be a professional school shooter. The FBI claimed that it could not determine who posted the comment. 
But don't worry, everyone, they're totally clear that Hillary's innocent and Trump colluded with Russia. November 1st, 2017. Nicholas Cruz's adopted mother, Linda Cruz, died from pneumonia. I also imagine emotional exhaustion. Around this time, Linda's cousin Catherine Blaine called the Broward Sheriff, claiming that Nicholas Cruz had weapons and asked police to remove them. According to the Sheriff's Office, a close family friend instead agreed to take the firearms. Well, nobody has any idea who that was, as far as I know. Oh, like a train track to hell. November 29th, 2017. The family that took in Cruz following his mother's death called the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office to report a fight between the future school shooter and their son, which included Cruz threatening to, quote, get his gun and come back. It was also noted that Cruz had, quote, put the gun to others' heads in the past, end quote, but the family declined to have him arrested. My impression of this family conversation, based on no information whatsoever, the father says, this guy's a nut. He's putting guns to people's heads. He threatened to shoot her son. Have him arrested. The mom's like, but his mother just died. He's upset. One more chance. I know nothing. November 30th, 2017. Broward Sheriff's Office received a call claiming the crews had been collecting weapons and could be, quote, a school shooter in the making. January 5th, 2018, a person close to Cruz contacted the FBI National Tip Line expressing concern over his gun ownership, desire to kill people, erratic behavior, and disturbing social media posts, as well as the potential of him conducting a school shooting. The information should have been directed to the FBI Miami field office for further investigation, but that didn't happen. February 14th, 2018, Stoneman Douglas High School Resource Officer Scott Peterson failed to intervene and hid outside the school as the school shooting was underway. So, what can we learn? First of all, we should never have to learn these lessons because we should have competent and motivated and incentivized people trying to keep us safe from these kinds of monsters from day one. There is this cliche about the guy who goes to shoot up people or the serial killer. People say, oh, he was a nice guy. He kept to himself, never caused a moment's trouble. This was not the case. Trying to figure out that this guy was going to go off the rails is trying to figure out that communism isn't going to work. Let's just say, well, there were just a couple of red flags here. Nicholas Cruz came from a drug-addicted birth mom and was a tragic example of nature over nurture potentially when it comes to issues with his brain, with his motivation, with his mind, with his personality, who knows. But you cannot rationally change numbers and think that you're changing reality. Simply refusing to enforce the law for particular groups because you feel that enforcing the law is racist is just a feelings-based argument is fundamentally powerfully and almost irredeemably irresponsible. Because if you're the state, you force parents to pay for school, you force kids often to go to those schools, or you render it impossible for them to be anywhere else because so many taxes being collected from the parents to pay for the schools, you have a responsibility to keep those children safe. And if you simply refuse to enforce the law, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, you're creating the New York of the 1970s. Because when there's a certain section or group of people 
that the law doesn't apply to, criminal gangs can scoop in and use those kids to do their dirty work. You are actually increasing their exposure to and vulnerability to criminal activity. You're collapsing the standards as a whole in the schools as a whole. We have a very powerful, if not decisive, answer as to why different racial groups act in a different manner. And that answer is IQ. Blacks make less money as a whole than East Asians. But if you normalize by IQ, it evens out almost perfectly. In terms of criminality, IQ is the significant factor for criminal activity. In other words, all groups with an IQ between 85 and 90, regardless of the race, tend to engage in more criminal activity. There is an answer. And if we currently are trying to navigate the solar system while thinking that the Earth is the center of the solar system and everything spins around the Earth, we're going to get lost all the time and crash into things and die in space. No one is going to get punished for any of this. Nobody's going to experience any consequences. None of the bureaucrats, none of the politicians, none of the social engineers, none of, none of them. They all will get their pensions. They all will get their retirement benefits. They all will get their subsidized health care or free health care. Handing out get-out-of-jail-free cards to particular groups is not going to make them more lawful. This is not complicated. This is not hard to understand. It's just politically incorrect to talk about. And it is such a strange situation, my friends, to be in a society in the West where we, in a sense, would rather that these kinds of horrifying activities occur on a semi-regular basis than talk about differences between human groups. This doesn't mean there's inferiority or superiority or anything like that, but there are differences between genders, there are differences between groups, and science is very clear on that. This is not a matter of debate. What we do about it, that is a fascinating matter of debate, but if we can't even talk about it, we'll never get to any kind of solutions. We'll never get to any kind of understanding. And for sure, massive problems are going to continue to escalate in our societies until the truth is finally discussed.